Well, that's what we call a seamless transition, by the way, from that beautiful song and that beautiful prayer by Hamery into the Grinch. <laughs> seamless transition. Glad that you're here today. For those of you that weren't in here earlier, my name is John, and I'm the pastor of Carolina Family Church, and we are kicking off the series, uh, Don't Let the Grinch Get You. And I, I got to be honest, I'm feeling a little grinchy, all right? Nothing says Christmas like rain. Am I right? Just having a hard time getting into the spirit this year. And, and for those of you that, that I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, you might figure out pretty quick, I ain't from around here. And uh, I'm actually from Western New York. It's where I grew up. And in Western New York, we don't get cold rain this time of year. We get snow. In fact, at my parents' house, this is what it looks like right now. I brought a picture for you. That's what it looks I know, a winter wonderland. And so when I was growing up, Snow was what signaled the holiday spirit for me. And it would come as early as Halloween. I remember we had to tailor all of our Halloween costumes around snowsuits. So everybody was a, was a ghost. Everybody. You were the ghost, or if you're really cool, you're the Stay Puft Marshmallow. Okay? You got a white, you found a white suit, and that's what you did for Halloween. And so I got to tell you, when we moved down here in 2003 to Salisbury, it was very difficult for me to get into the Christmas spirit. And it still kind of is because I keep waiting for the snow. And every year, we, we never, we never get it before Christmas, right? Usually it's January, February. But every year in North Carolina, we want what for Christmas? Snow. We want a white Christmas. And every year there's some sort of news report. There's a news, you know what happens? The weatherman comes on TV and he says, Hey, might be snow in the forecast. Watch at 11. And so then everybody starts sharing and everybody's like, Hey, I heard there's going to be snow. I heard there's going to be snow on Christmas. There's going to be snow on Christmas. I heard there's going to be snow. And then finally it gets to 11 o'clock and you watch the news and they make you wait. He keeps teasing you and teasing you and teasing you. And then finally about 1120, he finally comes on and tells you the snow, the forecast. He said, there's, uh, there's a 50% chance of snow in Boone. <laughs> It's always in Boone, man. It's always in Boone. And we never get a white Christmas, all right? But we hope for it. And that's one of the things about Christmas that we're going to focus on in this series is, is what we put our hopes in. Our hopes might be in snow. Our hopes might be that that box under the tree is an Xbox 360. Our hopes might be that this year, when I go to my mother-in-law's house, she's not going to make some passive-aggressive comment about how disappointed she is in how I've turned out. Right? This year, my hope, it might just be that this year, everybody's going to get along. This year, my roast isn't going to be dry. You know, we've got all these hopes. And here's the thing. Most of them ain't going to work out. Right? Because that box under the tree, it's not an Xbox 360. It's shoes. You know it's shoes. So why are you so excited? Mother-in-law's going to make that comment. It's going to happen every single time. Right? Nobody's going to get along. Maybe a couple people. But it's going to be stressful. And listen, the roast is going to be dry. Because the roast is always dry. I've never had a pot roast that wasn't dry. So just warning, fair warning, we got to be careful what we put our hope in. we got to be careful what we put our hope in. And so what I want to talk to you about today is instead of putting your hope in all those things over the Christmas season, there is something that you can put your hope in that isn't going to let you down. It's always going to be consistent, always going to come through. But it's not any of those things that we, we often put our hopes in. 
Now, I get accused, I, I just have to tell you, I get accused of being a little bit of a Grinch. It's because it's, it's I have a hard time getting into the season. It's also because I don't like all the commercial stuff that goes around Christmas. It really drives me crazy. I love the day. I love the celebration. I love what it stands for. But I'm just not all about the Christmas thing. I'm a bigger fan of Easter. I don't know if anybody else is. I'm a bigger fan of Easter. And part of that is because in the New Testament tells us to celebrate Easter. And I just, I guess I just feel like I'm maybe more of a biblical Christian or something, but nowhere, nowhere in the, nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to celebrate Christmas. Nowhere. But we make this huge, big thing about it. In fact, when you read the gospels, all right, only Matthew and Luke give any real details on the birth of Jesus. And John, who is Jesus' best friend, by the way, doesn't even mention it. He doesn't seem nearly as concerned with Jesus' physical birth as something more important. And so what I want to do today as we go into the Christmas series is go to the book of John so we can see how to have hope through this Christmas season. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. Some of this is going to be familiar. All right, John chapter 3. And just so you know what's going on, Jesus is, uh, he's an adult now. He's, we're not doing baby Jesus today. He's an adult now, and uh, we don't read much about his young life, but he's been uh, baptized by John in the Jordan River. He's gone out into the wilderness to be tempted. He started his ministry. He's teaching. He's healing. And the religious leaders in the area are taking note of this guy. He's like the rising star. And they all want to know what's going on with this Jesus guy who's doing all of these incredible things. So one of the leaders of the Pharisees, those are the religious guys, gets Jesus alone at night on a rooftop to ask him some questions and feel him out, to get to know him. And I would tell you that for some of you, you may not feel like you know Jesus. You've heard about him, you've heard things, you've seen things in the media, you've watched the movies or whatever, but you don't feel like you really know who Jesus is. And right here, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, religious leader, sits down with Jesus to find out what this guy's all about. And so maybe as Jesus explains this to Nicodemus, you would hear today what Jesus is all about. All right, so John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Start at the beginning, it makes sense. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, so there was this ruling council called the Sanhedrin. It was a, a bunch of guys with religious authority that would make the decisions for the nation. So he's on that council, a ruler of the Jews. This man came by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's not really a question, it's more of a statement and his statement to Jesus is, hey, we've seen everything that you've been doing, and we believe that God is with you. But really, the underlying question is, you're indicating, Jesus, that there's more to this than just that, so what is it? Which explains Jesus' answer, because Jesus' answer doesn't really speak to his question. It speaks to the motivation behind the question that Jesus knew was there. So Jesus responds, answers, and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. It's an odd thing. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He's thinking the same thing many of you are. Born again. How's that work? Right? How's a man to be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? <laughs> he's trying to think of the, the, uh, the physics of this. All right, he's trying, to, he's trying to think of how this works mechanically, how this works, all right, and uh, he can't figure that out. Jesus answered, of course, it's a, it's a silly question, but Jesus answers him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water 
and the Spirit. Born of water is a physical birth. Born of the Spirit is a spiritual birth. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we're all born of water, right? We're all, we're all born naturally. You wouldn't be here if you weren't born naturally. So yes, the answer is yes. We were all born naturally. But Jesus is saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born also of the Spirit. You have to be born of the Spirit. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, there was only one person in the history of the world that uh, was born of the flesh and the spirit at the same time. So we're all born of the flesh when we're born physically, and then in order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be born of the spirit at some point, but there's only one person who ever lived who did both at the same time, and that was the man who said this, Jesus Christ. And I can show you where we actually are going to go to baby Jesus for a second. Okay, so Luke, Luke chapter one, actually it's, it's pre baby Jesus to be fair, but Luke chapter one, verses 30 to 35, an angel comes to a young woman named Mary because she's found favor with God to share with her good news, great news. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. She knows who this is. This is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about. But Mary said to the angel, uh, another kind of uh, physiological question, right? How can this be, since I do not know a man? Think you know what that means? All right, so I'm not going to explain it. And since I do not know a man, there's some kids in the room. And the angel answered and said to her, listen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So Jesus born of the flesh, born of the Spirit at the same time. So he didn't need to be born of the Spirit, but we do. If we want to be a part of God's kingdom that lasts forever, we have to be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit can give us hope that nothing else can. Now, because Jesus was born fully indwelt with the Holy Spirit, he was able to live a life without any sin. And because he lived a life without any sin, he was able to offer himself on the cross to pay for mine and for yours, to pay for all the sins of the world. And when he hung on the cross, he substituted himself for all humanity so that we could be forgiven of our sin and so that we could then be born of the spirit and not just of flesh so that we could enter the kingdom of God. And he already knows all of this is going to happen because he explains it in the next verses. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, he's talking to Nicodemus about this whole being born again thing. And he says this, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of God be lifted up. And that sounds a little strange. If you don't know the story from the Old Testament, let me explain. Jesus is referencing something that happened to the nation of Israel. 
after God led them out of Egypt, but before they went into the promised land, they spent years, 40 years in fact, wandering in the desert. And during that time, there were some people within the camp that were faithless. There were some people in the camp that sinned. And I know this is a crazy story, but roll with me, okay? There's people that had sinned, and God was going to send judgment into the camp because they had sinned against him. And so God sent, get ready, snakes. Snakes are the worst. Can we agree? Are snakes worse or spiders worse? Everyone who said spiders, you're wrong. Snakes are the worst. Snakes are the worst. When, when, when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he came as a snake. So you're just not going to top that, okay? They're creepy and they're weird. And I t- actually, <laughs> quick story. Uh, we just moved into a new house, and it had some moisture issues under the house, and so we had to get the whole, the whole crawl space encapsulated, okay, which is plastic inside of the crawl space, new, uh, new insulation and all that kind of stuff. So we get it encapsulated. And when the guys went in to do the work, he said, hey, I got some bad, he said, I'm a little nervous. I said, why are you nervous? He said, because up on the, on the edge of the foundation, I found a big snake skin. Not the snake, just the skin, which I think might be worse. You know, because when you see the snake, at least you're face-to-face with the snake. When you see the skin, you're face-to-face with the reality that that snake could come out of anywhere, you know? But if you see the snake, at least you know where it is. And so they, they did the whole crawl space, worried that just out of the insulation, one of them would just drop out of there, you know, and drop onto them, which is, I think, why they carried a machete in there. So anyway, <laughs> can't think of any other reason you need a machete. Uh, but they, uh, they did the whole thing, no snake. Oh, good. It's just a, it's a past snake, snake of Christmas past. And he's not in there anymore. And, uh, and so they encapsulated the whole thing. And then a couple of weeks ago, AJ Ebersole came over to the house to run a, a Cat 5 cable from one end of the house to the other end of the house. He went under there and uh, he came around the corner. Snake. And he took, I don't know why he took a picture, but he stopped to take a picture. So he took a picture. He took a picture and texted to all of us that was upstairs. And I can't say what he actually said, but he was like, no, sir. And, uh, but it turns out the snake had tried to go in between two pieces of plastic and got stuck. And so he's dead. And so now there's just, and I'm not getting him out of there. And so now there's just a dead snake under my house. Anyway, snakes are the worst. That's the point. And, uh, so God sends snakes into the camp in order to, uh, and, and they knew that the snake, uh, anybody that got bit by one of the snakes was one of the ones who had offended God's will. So it's a way of identifying the people who had sinned. And so the snakes come in, but God doesn't want that to be their final judgment. And so he tells Moses to create a bronze serpent, uh, like a pole, basically, and he was to hold that up. And anybody who got bit by a snake that would look at this, the bronze snake on the pole and would believe that God could save them from the, the penalty of that snake biting them, save them from death, would be healed of the snake bite. And so when, when Jesus says, just like Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, he's telling us the same thing is about to happen through him. And so he says, he says, uh, uh, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, serpent in the wilderness, even so the, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So that any of us that have sinned, any of us that have failed God, any of us that have borne of, of water, but not of flesh, could look at Jesus on the cross and by putting our faith in him, 
believing that he can save us, we too can be saved from the penalty of sin and death. And then he gives the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think it's important, this, this word begotten, it's, it, this is part of the reason I told you a while back I switched to teaching from the New King James. This is one of the, one of the places where uh, they, they made that evident to me. You know, other versions will say God's one and only son, and that can be a little confusing because we say, well, Jesus was God's son, but it also says that I can be a son of God, so how is Jesus the one and only son? What this means, the word begotten means comes from, out of. And so while Jesus is God's only begotten son, we all can become adopted sons and daughters by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But people get confused about this. And Jesus makes it really clear why he came into the world. He said, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what a lot of people think. They think that Jesus' job is to make them feel bad about their sin, is to convict them of their sin, is to judge them for their sin. He said, that's not why I'm here. That's not why God sent his son. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is not the snake slithering through the camp, biting people. Jesus is the snake held up in front of everyone else, that by faith in him, we can have a relationship with God. Christ gave his life on the cross so that we could have life and hope. And I want you to know that if you put your faith in Christ and believe in what he did for you on the cross, that is a hope that will never let you down. It'll never be, you'll never unwrap it and find it something you didn't expect it to be. You'll never, you'll never get your hopes up that God will forgive you and find that he won't. And it doesn't matter how far you've come. It doesn't matter how bad you might think you are. He will forgive everything, everything, everything that you've done. And you can take that to the bank. And so to put my hope in anything else is foolish. But to put my hope in Christ, well, it's brilliant. Because everything else is temporal. Everything else fades. Everything else can break. Everything else goes away. But Christ will never go away. He proved his power by rising again on the third day. And so I can put my hope in him, and you can put your hope in him. And I, I know there may be some of you who you've known about Jesus, but maybe today it's, it's becoming clear to you for the first time that you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to believe in him. Believe that he can forgive you, that he can save you, and that hope can be confident. And I want to encourage you to make that decision today. But he says eternal life. You know, when Jesus says eternal life, that, you, that if you put your faith in Christ, you will not perish but have eternal life. That's not deferred life. That doesn't mean that if I, if I put my faith in Jesus, then I have eternal life that starts when I die, when I go to heaven, right? That's eternal life that starts now. And so Jesus' desire, Jesus not only wants to save you from the penalty of your sin, but he also wants to save you from the pain of your sin. He wants to save you from all the pain that's around us, all the, all the trouble that sin causes in our life. And he wants to set you free from that. He doesn't, he does not, he didn't save you so that you could be miserable for the next 30, 40, 50, 80 years. He saved you so you could be free. 
He saved you so that you could serve him with your head held high and with confidence. He saved you so that you would not perish, not now and not forever, so that you could have life now and forever. So we can put our hope in Christ now, not just, not just for our future. And we can have life now. Now, how do we get life now from Jesus? If we know that we're saved, if we put our faith in him, how do we get life now every single day tomorrow and, and on December 24th and 25th and 26th? Maybe 26th is the hardest day. Or maybe the day in January when your credit card bills. Maybe, maybe that's the hardest day when the bill comes in, right? How do we have hope on those days? Well, a lot of people misunderstand this and they think that hope from Christ, life now, comes from following Christ's rules, following his commandments. I think that, that now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm putting my faith in Jesus, the way that I experience life is by understanding what all the commandments are, understanding what all the rules are, and making sure I'm following every single one of those to the T. And I want to tell you that if your mentality is, I want to know what all the commandments are, I want to know what all the rules are, and then I'm going to follow them, I'm going to stay away from this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, you give me the checklist, and I'll mark all the boxes off, Jesus. If that's your mentality, you will not experience life. You will experience death. You will experience despair. You'll experience hopelessness. Rules don't give life. Rules suffocate. Rules kill relationships. Look what it says. This is Paul writing now, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... So if, if, if I said when, when I put my faith in Jesus, if I said when I put my faith in Jesus Christ that I want to die to this world, that I want to live with you and I want to live for you, if I said that, if I believe that, if I'm following him, as though you're living in the, why, as though you're living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which are perishing, perishing with the using according to the commandments and doctrine of men. All these rules, all these religious rules that people try to put on us and say, you should do this, shouldn't do that. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So here's the problem. This is the problem with that mentality, that rules-based mentality, that rules can't change your desires. Rules can't change your desires. And what God is after from you, the way to experience real life is to be transformed from the inside out, to have our mind transformed, to have our heart transformed, not to follow a bunch of rules. And here's what happens, and I want to ease some of your concerns that you might have, because you're like, I mean, there are no rules, does it mean I can do whatever I want? No, 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 of course not. Because when we allow the Spirit to transform our mind, we begin doing all the things that are honoring to Him, and we don't need the rules to dictate them anymore. Or what often the rules do is they tell us what the lowest common denominator is. What can I get by with? And it's the wrong mentality. Rules ruin relations. Think about my kids. You know, I don't want my kids to hit each other. They do. But I don't want my, hit, I don't want my kids to hit each other. Particularly, we got, we got two older boys. J.D. is 10. Jairus is 8. And uh, we have a little girl, Josie is six, which is great because they protect her with their lives against everybody else in the world. And I'm counting on that when she's 16. Just saying. We instilled that in them early. Um, so they will not let anybody else hurt her except them. Isn't that the way it works? Don't you get near my sister. 
But, but I can, you know, but if I'm mad, it's a different story. I don't want my, my boys, I don't want, let me, let, I'm just going to call out Jairus. Um, Jairus is our middle child. We call him the Jairnado. For good reason, he leaves a path of destruction everywhere that he goes. He's the most loving child we have, though. It's, it's, he's, he's, we also call him 100 because he's 100% in, 100% out, 100% loving, 100% terrorizing. He's, he's nowhere in the middle of anything. And so he lives his life at the extremes, which could be good later, could be bad. We'll find out. You know, I feel like we're just kind of playing a kind of playing the lottery with Jairus. But he, uh, you know, if I don't want Jairus to hit his sister, if I tell him, Jairus, don't hit your sister, what's he thinking about? Hitting his sister, right? And if I start threatening him, Jairus, if, and I know that you got to discipline, I know you got to have rules and stuff, but if I tell him, Jairus, if you hit your sister, you're going to get a spanking, right? And yes, we spank in our house for the record. All right, you're going to get it spent. Yeah, I know. Don't hit your sister. If you do, I'll hit you. <laughs> that's, that's, not really, that's not really the way that it works. But to be clear, we have a whole process with spanking. We just don't haul off and hit our kids. But, um, but, you know, if I impose a consequence, what's he thinking about? How's he looking at me? He's looking at me like a tyrant who's telling him what to do. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm creating a preoccupation with the rules and a preoccupation with sin with him. And so he's thinking about it all the time. Does it make him want to hit her any less? Does it change his desires? No. Other than the fear of punishment, it doesn't change his desires. Does it make, is he learning to trust me? Or is he learning to resent me? He's learning to resent me, right? Because dad's the one who's looking to come down on me. What happens if he breaks the rule? Is he learning to fear me? And here's the real question. What happens when nobody's watching? What happens when he doesn't think that dad is going to know? See, a preoccupation with the rules, a relationship based on the rules, is no relationship at all. All it does is create fear. Instead, we talk to our kids about kindness and protection and love. And we model for them what it looks like. We don't hit each other. I don't, I don't hit anybody in our house unless we're wrestling, and then i got to put them in their place. But other than that, we don't, we don't hit each other. We set a model for them. We do impose consequences when we need to, but they need natural consequences for their actions, not rules dictating their behavior. They need to experience what it is to have a trusting relationship. All rules do is make you aware of how often you break them. That's what Paul says over and over again about the law that the Israelites had in the Old Testament. He said it was there so that you could see how you were transgressing God. The, the, the rules, the commandments are like a mirror. I stand in a mirror and I can see that my hair's messed up. <laughs> but the, the mirror can't make me want to fix my hair. And the mirror can't do anything to help me fix my hair. All it can do is show me that my hair's messed up. That's what the rules are for. That's what the commandments are for to show us where we failed. But God did not save you because you kept the rules. And does, God does not sanctify you, which means to make you perfect or to cleanse you over time, to make you more like Christ. He doesn't save you by keeping the rules, and he doesn't sanctify you by keeping the rules either. He has something better for you. Something that you can actually put your hope in. And I'm saying something, and I shouldn't say something. I should say someone better for you. How does Jesus save me from the pain of sin? He does it the same way he saved you from the penalty of sin. Grace. Not by your work, not by your effort, but by something he gives you that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve. 
In the book of Galatians, Paul is speaking again. And he explains this. He tells us. Galatians chapter 5. He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit. Not walk by the rules, not walk by the commandments, not walk by the standards that other people place on you, not walk by religion, not walk by sacraments, not walk by processes, not, not walk by tradition. He says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh, flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What he's saying is that there is a battle raging within you and within me, and it's a battle for our minds. It's a battle for our desires. And it's a fight between our flesh and the Spirit. And we have to choose which one we're going to follow, who we're going to walk with. We're going to walk with the flesh or we're going to walk with the spirit. I can be saved by God and make mistakes all the time because I choose to walk with the flesh instead of walking with the spirit. But I walk with the flesh and I'm going to experience pain. I'm going to experience death. I'm going to experience hopelessness and frustration and despair. But if I walk with the spirit, I'm going to experience joy and peace and hope and love. And I have to choose. I once heard someone explain this as... uh, that there are two dogs within you that are fighting with each other. And they said, which which dog is going to win that fight? The answer was, whichever one you feed the most. So you need to feed the flesh, you either feed the flesh or you feed the spirit. And I want to tell you that that's not true. It's not the way it works. Because I can't make the the spirit any more powerful than he already is. I don't take any power away from him, and I don't give him any more power than he already has. And I can't take any power away from the flesh because my flesh is still strong. I don't know about yours, but my, I've died to my flesh, but man, it is powerful. And I mean, when I say that, it's not only my sin, it's not only my nature, but it's my physical flesh. There are chemical reactions happening within my body that make me want to do things. There are endorphins running through my brain and all of those things that make me addicted to things, desire things. And I have, through my life, I've made those connections in many cases. So my, it's not just, when I say flesh, it's not just some spiritual thing. It's a physical thing as well as a spiritual thing. And there's a battle happening. And it's not that one, it's not that, well, I know one is stronger than the other. It's not that I can make one stronger than the other. It's that I have to choose which one I follow. You see, the Spirit will not control me, but he will convict me. And he will compel me. And I hate to say it's a little bit like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, but it is a little bit like that. I have to choose who I listen to. And whether I'm going to choose a fleshly mindset in life, a worldly mindset in life, or I'm going to choose a spiritual mindset in life. One is death and one is life. One is hope and one is hopelessness. And I got to choose. I have to choose every single day. And he says, now this is verse 19 i got to choose my desires. They're going to change my decisions. My decisions affect my direction, and i got to choose. All right, he says, the word, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. He's pretty much like, did I say enough? Yeah. Does that cover it? Have we covered everything? This is the work of the flesh. All right? 
and the like, and of which I told you beforehand, he's explained this before in his other letters, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to be clear here, I need, I need to take a pause just to be clear. When he says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not saying these people will not be in heaven. He's not saying they won't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. When he says people who practice these things won't inherit the kingdom of God, what he means is those who are in the kingdom will not have responsibility, will not have rewards because they've chosen to live life in the flesh rather than the spirit. And when we get to the kingdom of God, those who've chosen to live life in the spirit are going to receive responsibility and opportunities and rewards that others won't have, even though we would all be there if we put our faith in Christ. Right? So he says, don't you know, don't live in the flesh. That's what it looks like. And those people aren't going to, they're not going to have the reward. You don't want that. That is, that is death now. You know, that's hopelessness now. And then verse 22, he said, but the fruit of the spirit, if you choose to follow the spirit, fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So you follow the spirit and you will not break the law, but you do not uh, follow the law in order to follow the spirit. Does that make sense? You follow the spirit and he will bring you in line. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. Rules do not create life. Grace does. Grace does. We've been given a relationship with Christ. We've been given a relationship with God through him. And he's given us the spirit so that we can have hope. We have confidence, not only for tomorrow, not only for the kingdom that's coming, not only for the past this life, but now. The hope that I can become more like Christ. The hope that I can walk in life, that I can walk in the spirit rather than the flesh. And I want you to know, and I want you to hear very clearly that your level of faithfulness to God, your level of hope, your level of joy, and your level of peace is directly connected to your ability to walk in the Spirit. And I know that's scary because I can think of, I I don't have to rewind very far in my life to say I had no idea how to walk in the Spirit. I had no relationship with Him whatsoever. I knew everything there was to know. I, I thought about Jesus and about the Bible. I understood God, I understood the scripture, but I didn't know the spirit. He's a person who's with you. The ability to talk to him and the ability to hear from him. The way, the way that he explains scripture to me and highlights scripture for me so that I stay on track. I was talking to a friend this week who's going through um, some very difficult uh, decisions, life-altering decisions. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And I said, well, man, I mean, here's some principles from Scripture that apply to your situation, but the Bible ain't going to tell you what you're supposed to do. You got about four or five different options here. And so what you need to do is you need to say, Spirit, what do you want me to do here? Because I want to walk in you and not in the flesh. I want to follow you. And thankfully, he's spiritually mature enough, and he's been doing this long enough that when I gave him that instruction, I knew I could trust him to be able to do that. But what happens to a lot of us, and I can think of times where I've been in the same place, we're not, we're, we haven't learned how to follow the Spirit. So when the big things comes, because we haven't followed him in the little things, the big things come, comes down on us, and we don't even know how, we don't know how to hear. We don't know how to follow him. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. 
mean, if you really want to experience hope through the Christmas season, here's the best thing you could possibly do. Put all of the energy and attention you possibly can this Christmas season on Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And put all of the energy and all the passion that you can possibly muster into learning how to follow the Spirit. Asking Him to speak to you, reading the Word, and asking Him to highlight it to you and explain it to you. So that in learning to follow Him in the little things, the little conversations, the little moments, the little decisions. So when those big ones come, your hope is set in Him and how He is faithful to you instead of in anything else. Paul said this, Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. How? By the power of the Spirit. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. That's what I'm committed to doing this Christmas. I want to ask you to commit to doing that as well. Now let's pray together. God, we come to you, and uh, first of all, just want to recognize your power and your glory, which is way beyond anything we could ever comprehend, anything we could ever picture, anything we could ever depict. Your glory is, is incomprehensible, and so we recognize that today. And we understand that everything that you do ultimately is for your glory. And so when you sent your son to earth, it was not only for God to become a man. It was not only for Christ to set an example for us of how to live. It was not only for Christ to give his life on the cross to pay for our sin. It was not only so that he could show power and victory in his resurrection. It was not only for that you sent him here for your glory, that you would receive glory, and that you would receive glory through us, and you made that possible with your son, Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for sending him. God in the flesh, the incarnation. We thank you for your love and mercy, something you did not have to do for us. You chose to do for us because of your goodness. And you sent Christ here to show us how to live, to to teach us about your kingdom, to, to show us how to walk in the spirit. And then he gave his life on the cross for us as a substitution for us so that those of us who have sinned, which is all of us, could be saved by his blood. I pray, God, for anybody who's here who has never put their faith in you, they've never looked at him on the cross and trusted him for salvation, that they would do that today. That Christmas would take on a whole new meaning for them, that they celebrate and think about not just a baby laying in a manger, but a savior on a cross, but that they would give their life to him. Looking at the resurrection, believing in the resurrection of Christ, I pray that all of us today would say, God, you are good. And you are loving. That your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if we're going to live in the light, if we're going to live in life, instead of living in darkness and death, today, God, we say that we want to follow you. We want to live in your spirit. And I know across this room, there's different levels of ability to do that. Experience is in it. And so, God, what I'm asking is just that we would all take steps forward to know your spirit more, to hear from him more clearly, to recognize in our life what's coming from the flesh and what's coming from the spirit and giving us the the power to choose rightly, to choose to do what's honoring to God, to you. 
And that as we do that, you bless us with life, that you bless us with joy, that you bless us with peace and with hope, that you would allow us to fix our minds and our solely on you, our desires on your will. So that even as we go into this Christmas season, we could experience it in a way we never have before. With hope, hope that won't disappoint. Your hope, which we can trust. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.